But it's a happy day to be together with you today. Anytime God's Word is preached, it is a spectacular event. Don't rush away from the table too quick today. Let the Lord speak to us. John chapter 13. I'm going to um, pick up in verse 21. And if you're physically able, I'd ask you if you would just to stand as we read the Word of God together. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' breast one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore gestured to him and, and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He leaned back thus on Jesus' breast, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus therefore answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Jesus therefore said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the, for the feast or else that he should be giving something to the, to the poor. And so after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. Then therefore he had gone out, Jesus said. When he therefore had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. So this passage comes in the context of the Last Supper. Jesus and his disciples are gathered around the table, and they are celebrating the, the Passover meal meal. This is an important moment. I mean, there is there's much more here than we would have time for this week, this morning or uh, many days after. Uh, Jesus gives new meaning to the Passover. Up until this point, it was the remembrance and celebration of Jesus uh, setting free Israel from the bondage and slavery of Egypt. But from this moment on, it'll be celebrated, uh, celebrating Jesus setting us free from the bondage of sin and death. That's big in and of itself. This moment follows just after Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. It's a big moment. Um, a lot of things are happening, but in the context of this beautiful moment, Jesus has washed the feet of his disciples. He's giving new meaning to the, to the Passover meal. We have this dramatic moment. In fact, it, it talks about how Jesus' heart was troubled. There's clearly a change in tone in what's happening. John reflects this, I think, when he ends the, this, the, the testimony of this with just saying, and it was night, meaning there was a sense of darkness and impending doom in this moment as these men gathered around the table with Jesus. It's a dark moment. It is a depressing moment. And uh, it's a moment, frankly, that if you're not careful, you will give into the temptation to read through quickly and move on to, to better things. But I think there are many things we can learn from this passage, but I want to point out two this morning, really in the sense of warning us, two warnings, um, that specifically the life of Judas 
teaches us. Here they are, and then we'll walk through them. First, proximity does not equal authenticity. Just because you're near Jesus, just because you're near the truth, doesn't mean that you authentically know the truth. And then secondly, false assumptions don't equal true convictions. It does not matter, dear friends, what the entire world may say about you. Jesus knows your heart, and that is the only thing that matters. Let's begin with this reality of proximity. Proximity does not equal authenticity. Being near truth is not enough. Now, I understand my audience this morning. You are folks who have come out on the middle of the day to hear somebody preach for a Holy Week service. You're not the casual observer of the faith. I appreciate that. But dear friends, I understand that it may be more of a crowd than anybody else. We are people who are near the truth regularly. This is probably not the first time you've been in church lately. I'm thankful for that, by the way. Somebody say amen. You ought to be in church this Sunday. But we need to hear a warning here that being near is not enough. Being near truth is not enough. Judas, like all the other disciples, has spent the last um, uh, three years in the presence of Jesus almost every single day. Both, he'd enjoyed both the, the public ministry of Jesus, so all of the great Sermon on the Mount preaching, he had heard every word, but he'd also been in the private intimate moments with Jesus when he was just teaching the disciples. Judas had witnessed all the miracles recorded in Scripture and likely others that were not recorded. Judas had, had witnessed the dead being raised to life. He had, he had witnessed demons being cast out. He had, he had witnessed prophecies being fulfilled in front of his very eyes with, with Jesus. He had the blessing of being intimate with the Lord. And now even as they eat this meal, it is Judas, by the way, who is to the left of Jesus, likely in the, in, in the place of honor next to Jesus as they recline and eat this meal. And yet for all the blessings of being near the Savior, he was willing to sell, sell the King of Kings for the price of a common slave. Proximity only provides access. Believing faith requires more than just being close. You see, the Bible tells us that you must be born again. John reports in chapter 3 of his gospel that a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who was close to truth in his own right, came and asked Jesus about the signs that he had been performing. John records it this way. He says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is, in, is with them, with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, truly, I, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again, can he? And Jesus answered, here's the key. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. To Nicodemus, Jesus was making clear that all he had was not enough. His religious zealousness alone was not enough to allow him to see the kingdom of God. His, his personal morality was not enough to allow him to see the kingdom of God. His human wisdom, his worldly power, his worldly influence, all the things that made Nicodemus Nicodemus was not enough for him to see the kingdom of God. 
You see, the work of salvation is spiritual. And what is spiritual cannot be accomplished through the physical means of our effort. Jesus was heading to the cross to be the once for all sacrifice for our sin. He would accomplish this through his death, which what no man could accomplish through our flesh and our efforts. I don't know what was truly in the heart of Judas. I don't know the fullness of what he hoped to accomplish by betraying Jesus. But I do know this, it was a hope based on the effort and power of man. He was hoping to accomplish something in his own effort. Do not miss the tragedy. He was so close. At this meal, he literally could touch the hem of the garment of Jesus, the Savior, the one who was and is and is to come. He was so close. And yet he rejected the hope of salvation for 30 pieces of silver. Proximity isn't enough. Secondly, dear friends, false assumptions do not equal true convictions. Now, we all know the end of the story with Judas. We know what he'll do. We know he's going to betray Jesus. Jesus knows it in this moment, but the disciples don't. They're clueless about what Judas is doing. In fact, in in our passage, it says that when he leaves, they make the, and this is a reasonable assumption, they assume he's going to do something honorable or something required. So uh, to make some preparation or to even give some money to the poor. Dear friends, it does not matter what other people think about you. You know, to understand this passage, I think it is helpful to understand the the eating arrangement that is happening here. Most of us, me included, when I think of the Lord's, the, the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, I have Da Vinci's image in my mind. A table with Jesus in the middle and the, and the disciples all spread out to the left and the right. But that's not how they would have been eating this meal. They would have been reclining, laying on their left side, using their right hand to eat. And so that's why it talks about leaning against the breast of Jesus. It's, most commentators believe that Judas was to the left, which, by the way, was a place of honor, and that John was to the right. That's why he's able to lean back on the breast of Jesus and ask him a question. If in your mind's eye, just had this image of leaning back and sort of over your left-hand shoulder, John speaks to Jesus. It's an intimate context, and, it's, uh, and, and it explains, I think, why it could be that Jesus could speak to Judas and John hears, but maybe not the rest of the, the disciples, either hearing or understanding what he's saying. Peter is likely nearby. The, the scripture tells us that uh, he gestures to John. I, I, I don't know where he is in the, in the arrangement of these disciples, but I'm guessing he's probably as close to Jesus as he can be. We know Judas is, is uh, next, next to his left and John's to his right, and so I'm guessing Peter's pretty close. And it's very likely that the other disciples thought that Judas was one of them. He's at the table. He's not only at the table, he's at the place of honor at the table. And by the way, even giving the morsel to To Judas was an act of honor. It was an act of deference to him. John hears what Jesus says in verse 26, but either he doesn't understand what it means, or he doesn't understand what it means in the context of this moment, or he doesn't think necessarily it's an immediate betrayal. And even when Judas leaves to make his way to betray Jesus, the other disciples in verse 29, it says, they make assumptions that he's going to do something honorable and good. Nobody assumes he's going to go sell out the Lord. You see, the disciples thought that Jesus, I mean, that Judas was one of them, a follower of Jesus, loyal to Jesus, willing to die for Jesus. You know, when Peter 
when Peter declares that he's willing to, to give his life for, for Jesus, the Bible says all the other disciples said, yeah, me too. In this context, when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, and they all start asking who it is, I can hear in my mind's eye them going, well, I don't know who it's going to be. And I'm, Judas is in that mix going, I don't know. He does know, but he's putting on the show for those around him. We understand that no one can know the heart of another. And here is the great danger, friends. You can have the whole world believing that you are right with God. You can have the whole world testifying that you are right with God, but the judgment of the world has no bearing upon your soul because only Jesus knows the truth of your heart. The Bible says that Jesus was troubled because he was experiencing the sting of betrayal even before Judas left the room. And the reason is because he knew the heart of Judas. When Paul wrote in Romans 10 what is required to be saved, every time I read this verse, it strikes me at how simple it is. Listen to what Paul writes. This is how we are saved. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now, from a secular perspective, one might even say this is easy and pointless. You want to be saved, just say the right words. Jesus is Lord. I'm done. I'm good. I'm finished. But here's where the issue of the heart comes to bear. God perfectly knows your heart. I don't. Your pastor doesn't, even your spouse doesn't. But God perfectly knows your heart. Salvation comes through believing faith and confession of Jesus as Lord. That's what the assurance of Romans uh, 10, 9, when it says you shall be saved. Listen to me carefully. That assurance, that, that powerful definitive statement is not founded on the work of man. It's not founded on the fact that you said with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. That is founded on the ability of God to know the truth of your heart. If you have truly believed on Jesus, God knows it. And when you confess him as Lord, God knows it and you shall be saved. Dear friend, listen to me carefully. Find absolutely no comfort in the approval of others, the assurance of others, or even the judgment of others. Have as your only comfort in the truth that God knows perfectly your heart. He knows who are his and, who's are, and who are not. What makes this passage so brutal is the betrayal and the intimacy of it. Betrayal, I think, is one of the most, if not the most destructive and painful experiences we know. And I suspect that everybody in the room can tell a story of an experience where you've had, where you've been betrayed. And you'll understand that the greater the intimacy of the relationship the more painful, the more stinging, the more searing the pain of when betrayal comes. Isaiah would write, chapter 53, Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Indeed, dear friends, Jesus, who was all God and all man, knew all of our suffering. 
There's no pain. There's no grief that we have known that he has not known, including the brutal reality of being betrayed by one that is near and dear. Betrayal leaves a lasting scar. In our nation's capital, there is a grandiose building called the, the National Cathedral. It was literally almost being built the entirety of our nation's history up until modern history. It's been the location of a lot of national events. It's been the place where we have mourned the, uh, the funerals or the, the memorial services of, of nine U.S. presidents and two first ladies. It's been where we have uh, hosted uh, prayer services after presidential inaugurations and, and national tragedies. It is the, the backdrop to so, to so many of the momentous moments in our nation's uh, history, not necessarily triumphal moments, but particularly moments of tragedy and, and difficulty and sorrow. Unnoticed by most people that walk through that, that building every day as tourists, and certainly unnoticed by those of us who simply watch it on TV, is the railing that separates the altar from the choir. It's an ornate building. If you've ever looked at it on TV, if you've ever been there, every place in that building is, is ornate and decorative and, and beautiful. And that railing is, is no different. It's a simple railing. It separates one section of the building from another, and, and each each uh, rail of the railing, there's 12, by the way, is, is designated for the disciples. And so an artist has come and made a carving of the rendering of what they think each disciple is, except for one. In our National Cathedral, with all of the decoration that it has and all the ornate realities that are in that building, there is one place in that cathedral that is left untouched by the artist's hand and remains simply just a flat block of wood. That's the 12th rail. It's the rail that was reserved for Judas, who does not receive a place of honor in that building because of his great sin and because of his great betrayal. Now, let's be clear. Judas rightly deserves condemnation for his betrayal. But before we allow our condemnation of Judas's wickedness, to give us any sense of self-righteousness. I want us to consider that before this night was over, Peter, who said that he would give his very life for Jesus, would curse and swear that he never knew him. John, who is now reclining, who, 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 who says he loved Jesus and refers to himself as the one in whom Jesus loved it's right there in the meal with him and enjoying being in the presence and the closeness of Jesus. John, the beloved disciple, will be amongst those who scatter when Jesus is arrested. Judas' betrayal is certainly great, but every last disciple will abandon Jesus. In this moment of painful betrayal, Jesus, though wounded in the flesh, is undeterred in his obedience to the will of the Father. You see, none of these men, no matter how faithful they were to Jesus, no matter how resolute they were in their determination, none of these men could provide for their own salvation, and none of us can either. 
Salvation comes only through the gracious work of Jesus alone on the cross. Judas is not the only betrayer, dear friends. But wicked, vile sinners come to moments like this and we find rejoicing in the beauty of this broken moment because even in this broken moment is our Savior who is undeterred moving toward the cross for vile sinners like you and me. And it's why we rejoice that by grace we have been saved through faith, that not of ourselves, but it is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. Judas indeed is a betrayer, but none of us are boasters. Because if you've been saved today, you have been saved only by the grace of the Savior Jesus.